Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco, and drink. I'm Steve Ryder, and I want to thank Demetrius Giannopoulos, who's sitting across the room from me, for allowing my guest and I to hole up here in the Eagle's Nest in the Castle Rock area. Thank you, Demetrius. Thank you. So, I want to set this up. I have loved doing this show getting to know so many people at a much deeper level, like Demetrius and Kay and Steve Grison and Paul Felitas and every person that I've talked to. I know I'm not going to forget some names, so I'm not going to continue on. That has been exciting. But I think my conversation today, I've never been this excited about an episode before because back in 2012, when I left working for Dr. Dobson, I left burned out. I was doing two daily radio broadcasts with half the staff. I had to focus to do one. And the workload was starting to really take its toll on the broadcasting staff. The last two months that I was there, I lost 20 pounds, wasn't eating, wasn't sleeping, was throwing up multiple times a day. And one, coming out of that, I had always taken good care of my health. In fact, um, having two parents who were overweight, I always wanted, never wanted to be in that position where I would, you know, look at myself being 30, 40 plus pounds overweight and have to kind of figure out how to get that fixed. And in fact, I took a 23andMe test and it said I'm genetically predisposed to being overweight. And so my health has always been important. But coming out of that, I really wanted to take it up to a whole new level. And back in, I want to say it was 2016, might have been 2015. For some reason, the word biohacking all of a sudden just came up in my it, it, just in the back of my mind and my spirit. I don't remember where. So I just started to investigate and research and I started listening to Dave Asprey and the Bulletproof podcast and Bulletproof Radio. And I would listen to, um, you know, Ben Greenfield and I would listen to. And I found later on uh, Dr. Jeffrey Gladden and Living Beyond 120, which is my second favorite podcast that I listen to. And taking my health up to a whole new level has been a gigantic passion of mine these last number of years. And my guest today is one of my doctors, Dr. Abid Hussein. And I got to meet him. Let's see. I, I, I remember being interested in peptides in adding that into my overall health plan. And I remember looking just to find doctors in Denver or Colorado Springs that were familiar with peptides because my doctor wasn't at all. And so I found him and I was just like, I wonder if he's been on any podcasts. I listened to a couple podcasts that you had been on and I was like, ooh, I like this guy. And so when everything, right before everything went sideways with Elizabeth, Kay and Steve Grison had said, hey, we're going to run a GoFundMe for Elizabeth, whatever you want, you know, exercise equipment at home, you know, working with specific doctors and, you know, the treatments that it's going to take, whatever it is, you come up with a budget and we will do it. And so we interviewed three doctors, Dr. Abid Hussein, who's with me, was one of those three. And I really liked the dude. And so after Elizabeth passed, I was like, I got to see this guy because, uh, you know, I was dealing with really bad brain fog, which is mm -hmm. very natural when you when you lose it, when you lose a spouse or a child, you go sure. through something majorly traumatic to have to deal with brain fog for, you know, two plus years sometimes. And so I saw you, I just gotten, you know, I tweaked a tendon in my elbow. And so you we were like, all right, let's get the tennis elbow taken care of and let's try and get, you know, 
some neuroregenerative peptides going. Mm -hmm. And uh, my man, I want to say thank you for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for those kind words. So before we get into the health, and I threw this up into the group. I said, what things are you interested in me talking with you about? And there were a number of things like fatigue, combating fatigue and cardiovascular health, which you were a cardiologist, now turned functional medicine doctor. And actually you work at a heart institute, the Mm -hmm. Boone Heart Institute in the Denver Tech Center area. But before we get to those, let's talk about you. Let's talk about your story. Mm -hmm. You grew up in Jersey. Yes. And how'd you get into medicine? It was uh, almost assumed that I was going to get into medicine. My dad was, well, he told me growing up he wanted me to either be one of three things, an accountant, a lawyer, or a doc. And um, I I resisted it for a long time. I actually wanted to be a comic book artist because I was obsessed with comic books. Really? Yeah. And, you know, the the human form, the muscles, just everything about it. Yeah. Um, A little bit more artistically inclined when I was young. I did a lot of drawing. But that changed when I took a gross anatomy class because it, it really it piqued my interest in a way that... In college in, or high school? College. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the dissections from science class were fun, but there's still some loss. lost. It's lost in translation. You yeah. know, a, dissecting a frog is very different than, dis- yeah. than the human anatomy. Exactly. But um, in college, there was a gross anatomy class, and that just sold it for me. Where'd you go to school? Rutgers University. Rutgers. Yeah. All right. It's good fun. It was, you know, big state college, easy to get lost in the shuffle. People were more a number than than a student, but uh, it still landed for a lot of opportunities. Yeah. And then you did your residency, what's it, outside of the U.S.? Yeah, uh, medical school. Yeah, medical school. Yeah. Went to St. George's. So... People that go abroad for uh, medical school are usually people that, for some reason, had a little too much fun in one or two years of college, and their GPA maybe one or two points lower, or weren't we weren't the, we didn't have all of the valedictorian status, but we're still smart enough to do a good job. Um, and you know, U.S. medical schools are tough, so. For me, it ended up being St. George's. And then, uh, with, you know, going in, having to go abroad for that really kind of put a chip on my shoulder to make me want to have to work harder than anybody else. Ooh. And that's usually what happens with people. Really? Yeah, they go abroad. Everybody, it's a little bit more competitive. It's doggy dog. We're all there with a chip on our shoulder because we had too much fun before. So we're going to take <laughs> this seriously. Was that the case for you? You had a little too much fun? I think I was just distracted. I mean, I had some fun, but... Uh, I didn't know really? how to study well. I didn't really? know how to really apply myself until I got to medical school. How, how did you get those skills? Just grunting through it, really. Because there's, really? no, there's nobody that teaches us in, in medical school. But when there's textbooks of information, I had to figure out how I was going to get it into my head. So I just put in the long hours and, and really uh, got myself to sit down and do the studying as opposed to you know, in college, there's, there was a lot of distractions and more opportunities to play and to not do something than study hard. So it was a late lesson, but not too late. That chip on your shoulder and that idea of just busting your ass ended up burning you out Yeah. later on. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your career from school to burnout. 
So and life. Yeah. So I uh, so I finished uh, medical school, uh, two years in the Caribbean, and then two years of rotating through clinicals in different hospitals in the U.S. And then uh, I went to work in uh, in uh, SUNY Downstate, which is where I did my residency. Now that's uh, up in Brooklyn, Kings County, one of the busiest hospitals. It's an inner city hospital, so we were doing all of the grunt work. Didn't have any real support facilities, so it was a great experience just because we did everything. We drew blood, we practically did the labs, you know, intense, and then, uh, but also, you know, intense, demanding, and also very educational. So I did that. I did a year at Syracuse, and then went back to New Jersey for a fellowship in, at uh, Newark Beth Israel, and that was a fantastic education. How so? Because it was a small program. It was new. But we had just gotten a new director who was really interested in educating us the right way. He did a great job. So, really? So I walked out of there feeling very confident in, uh, in my cardiovascular training and my skills. You know, after traveling around, New Jersey wasn't doing it for me anymore. Even though it's close to Manhattan, I just didn't want to be in the Northeast. So I went to, I wanted to go out west to California, but that's uh, Basically, a closed uh, system. Yeah, closed system. They recruit from the UC, uh, from the University of California system. So the next best thing was to go to Vegas, and Vegas being a land of opportunity, and it was also one of the epicenters of cardiac disease in the U.S. Hmm. Because they get it from both ends. You get tons of retirees, and then you get a lot of people that are genetically predisposed to it and have a bad lifestyle. So very busy. So why cardiology? Out of all the potential fields that you could have chose and gotten into, what was it about cardiology? There's m- multiple reasons. It is the thing that instills fear in the hearts of all the other doctors. Next to trauma, cardiology is the next thing. Really? Yeah, because they're, because the, it, things are an emergency. People, arrhythmias can kill people very quickly. There are, um, chest pain can lead into a heart attack, which kill you quickly. So it's life and death a lot of times. And then there's a lot of things about cardiology that are scary for a lot of other docs. If you're stress tolerant, then cardiology is a great field because it's about interpreting data and being able to make quick decisions that are life and death Mm. and and do them regularly. Mm. And then being able to take a, then leave that decision behind, know that you did the best that I could, leave it behind and then go on to the next one. So that's the, you know, that's the way it was for eight years, about eight years when I practiced in Vegas. And for the most part, I was in a solo practice and it was 12 days on, two days off, on call, hospital work, outpatient work. And it's not sustainable. Yeah, definitely not. But it's that attitude, you know, the, the chip on my shoulder, doing the thing that, that nobody was willing to do and doing the thing that, that excited me. And it's also a, a multimedia field. We have a lot of different modalities that we look at the heart. So I can do an EKG, I can do an ultrasound, I can do a nuclear stress test, I can do a catheterization. I mean, these are all multiple ways to examine the, the, the body, the heart specifically, and they require hand-eye coordination, some of them. So it's skill-oriented too, procedure-oriented. Mm. So it's a really dynamic field that involves a lot of different skills. So that really attracted me too. Hmm. Obviously, 12 days on, two off would push most people into burnout. Yeah. And 
Is that where your burnout really kind of happened? Was out there in Vegas? Yeah, that's when it happened. Living in Vegas is it's a unique experience. There's moments where I'd burn it on both ends because there's only a certain amount of time in a day to do things. And I didn't want to miss out on it, on opportunities to experience life. I felt like I did that through medical school and training and residency and fellowship. I mean, that's almost 20 years of training. And everybody else that I'd known was having fun, living their lives. So I said, all right, let's have some fun and live and then do the work too. But for the most part, it was work. And it just, you know, it ended up showing up in lack of satisfaction in my marriage, in life, in uh, being unable to just do the basic simple things. I remember a moment in particular when it all just became really clear to me. It was a, a Sunday afternoon and it was in the fall, October. I had just finished a really difficult weekend. And I had been working, doing rounds. I was coming home Sunday afternoon. And I remember driving through some of the strip malls and seeing cafes and people were outside doing the thing they do on a Sunday afternoon, relaxing, chilling out. And I didn't have the opportunity to do that. That really hit home and, hmm. and to the point where I just wished that these were some of the things that I could experience. I had no, I had no idea what it meant to just kind of get up and not have a, uh, you know, some, that regularity to a weekend. You know, the regular option of being able to just go and relax as opposed to, you know, thinking, okay, I've got this weekend free and I've got to get this stuff done or, oh, or, or just try and recover. Oh, jeez. So there was that. And then, you know, I think I was, the lack of sleep was the big thing. And then the stress, it all just built up. And I remember coming home one in that afternoon, sitting down in front of the TV and I was, you know, I was just welling up with emotion. I mean, I couldn't understand what was going on. I was feeling all these emotions in my body. I was feeling like laughing and crying at the same time. Like, this is absurd. What am I pushing myself to do here? You know, I, I, uh, I asked myself, all right, I had done everything I'd supposed to do. And I was at the top of, you know, of my personal world. I, you know, had a practice. I was the one in charge. I was successful, but I'm not happy. So I've got to re- reassess what the situation is and what my goals are. And your reassessment was taking some time off. Yeah. And go learn to paint. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that uh, childhood desire to be in the arts really started surfacing. And so I went home that afternoon and sat down to just unwind. I turned on public access TV and there was this documentary called The Power of Art. It's narrated by a, uh, an art historian. His name is Simon Shama. And he's this weird, quirky British dude that walks around with a scarf all over the place. But... Uh, he gave a, it's a seven part series and he gives the history of a certain artist with the perspective of their masterpiece. And um, I just remember seeing that and triggering some sort of a, a voice in my head saying, this is what you wanted to do. These are people that understood life in a very different way, in a way that you don't know how to understand right now. You need to slow down. I need to slow down and figure out how to appreciate life in a capacity that they were also. So it was a difficult process, but, and I think my wife at the time, she was 
confused about what was going on because I went from being an outdoor enthusiast to just spending my weekends uh, studying art history and doing my own personal a master's course in, in art history. So I spent maybe two years, a year and a half just doing that and minimally going outside and being an outdoorsman, which I used to love doing. I was a climber for a while. Yeah. And that just kind of went away or has that come back at all? It has. I, you know, I've found balance through everything. Yeah. So nice. I go back and I'm, I'm an outdoorsman again. And uh, I found my love in medicine through functional medicine. And uh, it, with a balance of being able to do it without having that intensity of the hospital. Yeah. So we'll get to functional medicine and getting back into it. But you actually moved to Santa Fe to go learn painting. I did. But we're still doing medicine a little bit on the side because you wanted to, you needed to keep those, everything kosher and good with mm-hmm. uh, medical boards and all that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was commuting back and forth from Santa Fe to New Jersey. So my brother is, you know, this accomplished cardiologist. After speaking with him and saying, telling him all everything I'm going through, I don't want to practice anymore. I'm done with medicine. It's killing me. He said, all right. Take whatever time you need to do, but don't lose your license and don't do anything stupid. And uh, he said, whatever I need to do to help you in that process, let me know. I said, sure, you can give me a job. You can let me cover for you so you can take more time off because as uh, hard driving as I am, my brother is twice as much so. Really? Yeah. And uh, did he ever hit that point of, you know, burnout or finding balance or is he still just hard charging? He's he's fine. He's hitting the point now. Yeah. Yeah. After 20 years of doing it. But he uh, so I said, I, I want you to be able to take some more time off and I want to have a chance to, to be able to support myself. So how about if I cover for you, you take some more vacations this way, your your practices and, you know, is it care for with someone that you can trust. Mm-hmm. So. He said, okay, I think I fooled him into it. And he, he, was, uh, he was happy to do it. The first year, of course, you know, he wanted to see how things would go. But that's basically what I did for nine years. Yeah, I flew back and forth. Really? Yeah, that long? Un- until COVID hit, basically. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I was going back and forth to New Jersey for even after I moved up to Colorado. Yeah. And you said you moved to Colorado in 2015. Mm-hmm. All right. So how did you get into functional medicine? What was it that drew you? And first, I guess, explain what functional medicine is and then why you moved from mm-hmm. from Santa Fe. Yeah. So I moved from Santa Fe because I had maximized, I thought, what I could learn from my apprenticeship. I studied with a painter named Tony Ryder, who has uh, he's a classically trained and paints in a way that they did back in the Renaissance. Yeah. So, you know, he, and I still go back to him and work with him when I have a chance. But at that time, I needed to take a step away, and I wanted to cut my commute in half. So traveling back and forth from Santa Fe was too long. So it was a full day, yeah, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a full day. So the transfer point was always DIA. So I said, let's cut it in half, go to live somewhere in Denver, because I had some friends here. It's a lot busier, a lot more booming and hip than Santa Fe was at the time and still is. So it was a lot more exciting, and that appealed to me. So mm-hmm. I came over here yeah, and then continued to work with my brother in New Jersey. But it was a lot easier because now it was a half-day commute instead of a whole day. Functional medicine. Yeah. So 
I moved to Denver and was trying to figure out how I could still stay relevant in medicine and do it in a capacity that would now satisfy me. My preference at that time was to leave medicine completely, but I knew that it was, I mean, it's in my blood. My, my dad's a doctor, my brother's a doctor, and it, it comes very naturally to me to practice medicine and to, to be of service. So I knew I couldn't stop. So I had to figure out what different capacity I could do it in. And, you know, I was thinking about making a career change to become an artist. But, you know, making a living as an artist um, is tough. There's, you know, to, to crack, the, to break the ceiling and to be successful, it takes a lot more than just skill. And uh, I wasn't going to be a starving artist. Hmm. I had already been successful. I already had, knew, knew how to make a living and I didn't think it was necessary for me to be a starving artist. So I said, all right, I've got these skills. It would be stupid for me to not continue to use them. So figure out how to use it on my terms. And figure out a, a, a field, an area, I guess, exactly. that, that really kind of resonates with you. Mm -hmm. so, so functional medicine. The idea of functional medicine is, is, is kind of in the name. You know, we, modern medicine or conventional medicine looks at dysfunction. It looks at when things are not functioning properly. The idea of functional medicine is to look at the things, to make them function properly, to make them function maximally as the gateway to health. The way in which I've heard it mm -hmm. described is traditional Western medicine treats the symptoms, whereas yeah. functional medicine will treat the underlying root causes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So... You know, the root cause can sometimes be, still be a mystery, but we're looking at it in a very different way. We're not just looking at a specific symptom. We're looking at a pathway, a system. We're, I'm looking at some other um, aspect of the, of the body's systems to help support health and, and see what's going on in that area, as opposed to just looking at it as a symptom or a specific minimal or a specific isolated organ. That's also the problem with modern medicine. It looks, it's minimalist. It, it breaks things down into separate organs without looking at things in a unified manner. Functional medicine, you know, is what, what medicine should be, which is looking at all the pieces and trying to figure out what is happening, even though it may not be related to the specific organ that I specialized in. Given a specific example that you see consistently in your practice that the traditional cardiologist mm -hmm. or general practitioner, whatever, is, is treating the symptom, whereas you guys will treat it different. You personally will treat it differently yeah. by approaching it from that functional. So if we look at atherosclerosis, you know, there are the, the conventional wisdom is to just look at your cholesterol. Well, what I'm going to look at is yes, your cholesterol, but I'm going to look at inflammatory markers because it's not the cholesterol that's really the problem. It is the cholesterol is the bystander, you know, where there's inflammation, cholesterol will follow. So the really prudent thing is to look at what's causing inflammation. So look at genetics. There, there are certain genetic factors that will predispose people to um, higher inflammation. We're going to look at see if their metabolism is, is intact. And then that'll give us an idea to see where the inflammation is coming from. If their genetic markers are okay, then we got to take a step back and look at their lifestyle. See where it is that they're, they're not, maybe they're not getting enough sleep. Maybe they're not getting the right diet. Maybe they're not exercising. It sounds really 
basic and, and really kind of elementary and obvious, but it's amazing how we still see people not doing that, that simple stuff yeah. the right way. Yeah. You know, because there's a lot of information out there and we all try and do it when we can. Sometimes it's not being done the right way either. I remember it was a big awakening for me, I guess, in listening to Dave Asprey and Ben Greenfield and Jeffrey Gladden on Living Beyond 120 and the experts that they would bring on mm-hmm. talking about inflammation is the key. It's all about, I mean, it, it may not all be about inflammation, but inflammation is a gigantic key when it comes to not only cardiovascular health, but health in general. Is it really that important? It, definitely it is. You, the, the concept now is, is aging, is inflammation. In fact, it's being called inflammaging. You know, there's, when we look at it, uh, it, it, that's the source of most of the infirmity that we see right now. Most of the problems that we see, it's going to be, whether it's diabetes, it's inflammation in the pancreas, cardiovascular disease, inflammation in the arteries of the heart, in the vascular system, dementia, inflammation in the brain, and each organ has its own separate response. They're similar on some level, but the tissues are different, so it reacts differently. So how does one then start to figure out where they are inflammation-wise, and then how do they, you said sleep, like diet, exercise, what else? Like what specifically with those things do, do people do in order to try and help so when we look at, um, you want to start with getting a, the basic set of blood markers. So it'll look at the easily measured or readily measured inflammatory markers. That'll tell, give us an idea of where you are in the spectrum of inflammation and how aggressive we need to be. And then from there, if we see that there's uh, inflammatory markers indicating that, yes, you have activated plaque, you have, uh, you know, cholesterol that is, you know, quote unquote hot, Mm -hmm. then we have to start with pharmacologic agents. We got to start with, you know, the ones that people hate most of, most of all statins, but there's other options besides that. And then we want to look at uh, what's causing the inflammation for sure, or what's causing the hot plaque to be really activated. We look at blood sugar. We look at, you know, a lot of those other markers hemoglobin A1C to see if it's consistently elevated, homocysteine, which gives us an indication of, of some of, the, of uh, your methylation pathway, which is a detoxification pathway. If those are all normal, then we have to see, okay, is there, are there metals involved? Are you, is your environment okay? Are you eating too much carbohydrates? Are you eating too much sugar? Are you eating at the wrong times? You know, so that's part of the the initial evaluation, understanding, okay, are you eating all the time and not giving your gut time for it to heal? We got to look at the gut. The gut is, you know, integral to our health and integral to understanding inflammations. If we are eating a diet that's high in gluten, high in dairy, high in processed sugar, that's going to predispose your gut to having pathological bacteria or biome that's going to cause inflammation. And then every time you eat, your gut's going to be more permeable, allowing inflammatory products to get into your bloodstream and then allow your, and then cause your body to have an overreactive response. That overreactive response is going to then turn cholesterol that might be innocuous into hot oxidized cholesterol. So that's just one of the processes. Sleep. 
If you're not getting enough sleep, you're going to ride a higher cortisol level. Higher cortisol levels are going to be release higher, more stress hormones. Higher stress hormones are going to lead to hypertension. It's going to lead to conversion of plaque to hot plaque. It's going to lead to inflammation of your pancreas, causing diabetes. It's going to lead to weight gain. So because less sleep makes people hungry, makes them crave sugar. Mm. Your body is wanting the sugar because it's in a stress state and it uses sugar as the immediate energy source when it's a stressed state. So, I mean, this is just a few of the examples of what goes through my mind when I'm doing a history and physical and I say, and they say, well, my sleep isn't that great. I'm not waking up rested, but you know, I've dealt with this for 10 years, you know, and it's okay. In my mind, well, that's not okay. We've got to dig into that to get you back to doing, sleeping well and getting you able to reset. For me, when I first got, I'm holding up my aura ring, mm-hmm. O-U-R-A, for those of you listeners that haven't heard me talk about it on the podcast before. It's a sleep tracker made by a company called Aura. And um, I've personally found it to be very, I don't know necessarily accurate in terms of the deep sleep numbers, but I have found significant correlations. I had a conversation with you, I think one of the first times that we met about I sent Elizabeth off to Idaho to go spend a week and a half or about a week with her sister. I think it was a little over a week. And I was used to having her oxygen condenser on at night. And so I just flipped it on and I'm like, ah, what the heck? I'm just, I might as well just throw the cannula on and just see what happens. And my deep sleep numbers doubled and tripled the entire time she was gone. And I was like, okay, it's one of two things. Either the oxygen is helping or... I need to be sleeping in a bed by myself. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as she came back, sure enough, the next two nights were down. And so I was like, okay, how, I can test it with oxygen through one of her portable units. And so I went out to the garage, filled it up and just had it next to the bed and mm-hmm. put the cannula on. Sure enough, my deep sleep doubled and tripled. Mm-hmm. And so I threw it up in this Facebook group saying, hey, I found this breakthrough. I live at about 7,000 feet. And so I found this breakthrough. Mm-hmm. And in it, a respiratory therapist said, don't do oxygen, you could die. I called my doctor and she or sent my doctor a message and she was like, you don't have COPD. If it helps your sleep, just do it. Yeah. But another thing that was uh, posted within that thread was a book by Patrick McEwen called The Oxygen Advantage. And it's all about buteco breathing. And in it, he says you need you need to make sure your mouth is closed at night. And he gave two options. Either you can get the strap, the chin strap to keep your mouth shut. Or you can do just some micropore tape. And I just tried some micropore tape and I've been doing that ever since. And sure enough, mm-hmm. my deep sleep's fine without any oxygen. And it's and, and as someone I think I'm pre I think I'm genetically predisposed to low deep sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I historically, going back to college, when my college roommates used to tell me something I would say throughout I'm just so tired. Yeah. I'm just so tired. And when I got this aura ring, I found out I was averaging the deep sleep of a 70-ish year old man. And so to do that Mm -hmm. was a massive breakthrough. And then buying my Uller, Mm O-O-L-E-R, made by Chili Pad. It's a pad that goes, it's a mattress pad you go that goes underneath your sheet and uh, cycles temperature control water. And so I know one of the things that is really good for sleep is making sure the room is cold. Yeah. And so having that cool water, I run it at about, I think I'm down to 58 degrees and mm-hmm. for about a three hour stretch from like hour and a half after I fall asleep till about two in the morning. Yeah. And, uh, that I've, I've noticed that also was another big uptick in my deep sleep. Mm-hmm. 
anything else that you would recommend for people who they're like, yeah, I'm not sleeping well. How do, how do I improve it? Certainly the don't eat anything two hours prior to bedtime. The sleeping with an empty stomach is important. Uh, the having food in your belly is going to trigger insulin and then the insulin will reduce growth hormone, which is uh, important in sleep induction. Growth hormone will peak at 10 p.m. to 12 p.m. And that's one of the reasons why that window of sleep is really important because that growth hormone surge is integral to physical recovery. And the first half of sleep is about physical recovery. Hmm. Second half of sleep is about mental consolidation. So if you're going to sacrifice sleep, know that by segmenting your sleep or sacrificing certain parts of it, you're going to reduce your recovery in either one of those areas. So having an empty stomach and then sleeping at the right times too. This is the problem with shift workers. They sleep at odd hours and it completely ruins their metabolism and their health. But the sleeping by 10 o'clock is important. Getting to bed, getting in bed and trying to be asleep around that time. And then waking up, you know, when you can, ideally six. So you get the full eight hours. But um, I mean, it's just a few basic things. Yeah, don't eat anything. And calories too, don't, and alcohol consumption. If you're going to have alcohol, make sure you leave it to a little bit of dinner. And then unless on a special occasion, don't have any nightcaps. I've noticed that when I do alcohol in the evening, period, it hurts my deep sleep. Yeah. And so it's one of those things where I, I now rarely drink. Yeah. It's unfortunate because I love a good drink. Yeah. I love a cocktail, but you know, it's, there is no upside to alcohol. Even the idea of resveratrol in your red wine, you've got to consume so much red wine for that to be anything, anything legitimate. And now you can get resveratrol in supplement form. So there's really no excuse for using that excuse. But, you know, it's enjoyable. It's relaxing. Fine. You got to really use it with moderation if you're going to use it at all. Yeah. So knowing the importance of sleep and the medical community really starting to awaken to that, are medical schools and residencies starting to adjust from that shift worker mentality where you're working 16 hours, 15 hours, whatever it is at, at a time and, you know, pulling four hours of sleep mm-hmm. and then getting back up and that kind of stuff. Is that starting to change? Because I've always been concerned, especially since I've gotten to know more about the importance of sleep. I can't, I mean, I, I can only imagine that it increases mistakes when doctors are not sleeping well. Definitely. But it's not because of health reasons. Uh, and I w- I'd like to clarify that yeah. I'm so far removed yeah. from the yeah. medical school training yes. that even though we have some students rotating through the office, I still don't, you know, I don't have a good sense of what exactly the regulations are right now. But I know that w- when I was going through medical school, that was the time frame when they were starting to re- uh, readjust the sleep schedule and the work schedule for docs, for residents because of liability issues. Having doctors working for 24 hours plus becomes, you know, like you said, we, we end up having more, making more mistakes. We end up having less efficiency. We, it's, just, it's not good for the patient. It's not good for us. So what they started doing at my time was creating night shift, night shift rotations and then the regular other rotations. So we would get people that residents that would come in their month to do 
to do the night shift, cover things, and then they would take over for the next day. Or they would limit it to 24 hours. That's still not, not it wasn't that, uh, wasn't that great of, a, of an adjustment because, you know, 24 hours without sleep, go home, get one night of sleep, and then come back the next day was not really a great schedule. But they've been inching towards making the, the work hours more acceptable. Mm-hmm. And it depends on the subspecialty you're going in, into. I think that there is some value to training a person that's going to be in a high-stress field to know how to manage the stress. A trauma surgeon has to know how to wake up at night and get up and be on immediately. You know, an interventional cardiologist needs to know how to do that. But there's got to be, it's got to be done in a way so that they have, the student can get the training and the experience, but then also the time to recover. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't happening in my time. I suspect it's happening more often now. Are you in a good place? You like where you are career-wise? I'm in a fantastic place right now. I, I, if I feel like this last year has been, it's been a dream for me. Really? Yeah. It's uh, reaching the Boone Heart Institute has been the best move for me, and the, you know, most fortunate. I mean, I have nothing but great things to say about Dr. Boone and the staff. They do everything for me that I was having to do on my own. So they've taken all of that uh, administrative work off my shoulders. So all I have to do is practice and study. And, uh, and stay up to date on longevity, on, my, on research, on hormone medicine. You know, I, I just educate myself and do the work of the office. And then the rest of the staff takes care of me. It's, it's a dream. <laughs> you, know, it's, uh, you know, that was what got me in, into medicine. It was the, the, uh, the learning. And when it became more about working day to day, it started losing its luster. So that, but that's back now. And I got my nights and weekends to myself, which is fantastic. I don't have to do, you know, a cardiologist that is not on call is unheard of. So this is a really unique niche for me. So you love learning. What are your biggest passions around health? And what are some of the things, breakthroughs that are coming that you're most excited about? Well, uh, I love learning about peptides, which is what you mentioned before. And I think that that's... Let's, 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 what are peptides? Mm -hmm. Why don't more doctors know about them? And what are some of the really cool things that, that you're doing with them and can be done with them? So peptides are, are, it's basically the terminology for really microscopic mini proteins. Um, If you look at protein, uh, protein building blocks, they're made up of amino acids in sequence or in combination. A protein is more than 100. A peptide is basically less than 50 amino acids. So they're really small messenger molecules that our body uses to communicate intracellularly and then to other organs. And peptides have actually been used for 100 years. Insulin is a peptide. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they're protein molecules, a little bit larger, a little bit smaller, but protein molecules that have been used commercially to ha- stimulate our body to do certain things. And peptides are natural. So... And they've been used by uh, commercial pharmacies and big pharma throughout history. The difference was in 2000 with the Human Genome Project. They've been able to really map out a lot more of the peptides, a lot more of the messenger molecules. And then technology is caught up with the ability to formulate them. Hmm. So now compounding pharmacies can make them, smaller pharmacies can make them, and they're now more available to the mass market. So in the past... 
It was just whatever the pharma companies were researching, formulating and releasing to the public. Now, you know, this library of natural compounds is more available to us. And um, pharmacies that are smaller, compounding pharmacies, can produce them so that we can use them in a more nuanced level. So, you know, a lot of docs don't know about them because it's, it's just, you know, they know about some peptides because they're, they're regular medications that a lot of people will prescribe, a lot of docs will prescribe normally. But it's those smaller peptides that are flooding the internet right now that are real hot right now, those are the ones that are still a mystery because there's no, they haven't been educated in them, basically. It's a whole new science. It's a whole new way of looking at uh, medicine and the body. Most medications look at a specific enzyme, a specific receptor, block it or enhance it. Peptides work by giving our body that messenger, that stimulus, and then it stimulates pathways. So it's a cascading effect that has far-reaching implications. Um, so, so there's always new peptides that are, that are being researched and discovered. And then there's finding out more information about these peptides. And they, you know, they can be anything from uh, growth hormone stimulating peptides to immune modulating peptides to inflammatory ones, to ones for gut health. These are all used not just for healing you, which they can do great, but also optimizing your health. You know, we want to be able to we want to maximize, I, what I would like to do for all my patients is maximize their metabolism with the right pinpoint set of peptides so that they can be resilient and push themselves to do what they want to do and then recover rapidly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's, it's another, it's taken me years to be able to educate myself and work with the right group of peptide prescribers and educators and thankfully now I'm part of their faculty because I've spent so much time with them. But it, it's one of my passions. But it's, you know, it, it takes a lot of time and education to do this. So this is why a lot of, a lot of uh, doctors don't know about functional medicine because it takes two years to really, you know, anywhere from six months to two years to educate ourselves about what functional medicine is and peptides fall into that arena. What's coming in the longevity space that you're really excited about? Because you said longevity is something you're really researching. Yeah. I like the use of hormones in, as a very basic tool for longevity because hormones, when they're optimized, that's the foundational support that's needed for peptides. And I think that goes under, under-recognized. It's becoming more of a readily addressed issue now with testosterone clinics being everywhere, but it's got to be done the right way. And it's got, there's just so much nuance to this and there's not any real unified information source. So everybody, and this is the problem with hormonal medicine as well as functional medicine. There's so many different educating bodies and, uh, and regulating bodies that there's no real standard. So you've got to kind of feel out your doc and sometimes it's a crapshoot to figure out who's who knows what they're doing. But in, you know, for as far as what's coming out and what I'm excited about, you know, the uh, you know, I think the use of of proteonomics, protein modulating peptides is really, you know, it's it's a piece in longevity that hasn't really been looked at and it's now really being studied with the use of uh, what they're called GLP-1 receptor agonists and it's a di- it's being marketed as a diabetic medication 
but they're actually, um, they have far reaching effects and they affect our entire body in a positive way. Hmm. Now, I remember in uh, Dr. David Sinclair, he's mm -hmm. a Harvard researcher, his book, Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't yeah. Have To. It's one I've read, geez, four or five times. I re-listened to it while I was on a backpacking trip over the summer up to Indian Peaks Wilderness. And uh, one of his big things was metformin as part of, which is a diabetes drug, mm -hmm. and as part of his anti-aging, anti-cancer regimen. Yeah. Depending on who you talk to, there's some doctors that will think it's legitimate and it's valid and others that don't. I believe in the use of metformin. There are, it helps our bodies in multiple different ways. It helps us from a cellular level, helps us produce more mitochondria. It, it helps us on an energy level. It helps our gut health by um, just the nature of the compound itself. Uh, serves as a, a prebiotic or something that feeds our gut biome the right way mm -hmm. uh, and then supports its health and then it also stimulates anti-inflammatory pathways so i think there's some legitimate science to the use of metformin glp1 receptor agonists also you know you've heard them marketed as ozempic trulicity these go hand in hand with metformin they work in a different capacity but in a similar pathway also so i think that they're as powerful if not more powerful than Probably metformin. Next appointment with you. I need to make sure I talk with you about that. <laughs> sure. So I threw it up in the Facebook group. Mm -hmm. I said, what sorts of topics would you want me to talk to Dr. Hussein about? And I got, I, I threw out some different things. And mm -hmm. Mike Mears mm -hmm. added to that list, why smoking cigars is the least of my health problems. So let's talk about cigars from your perspective mm -hmm. as a doctor, because I, I shot you this email a couple weeks ago and I said, hey, I have a feeling because you're so health conscious that it's probably a no. But do you happen to like an occasional cigar? And I threw in this FDA study, <laughs> long term stuff that said two cigars a day didn't increase cancer. And and so you were like, I, I think I remember you saying, you know, Everything in moderation. I love an occasional cigar. And I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> I knew I really liked you. Yeah. So talk about cigars mm -hmm. and, you know, the pitfalls, mm -hmm. you know, where some problems could come. And do you see a social benefit for having this in your hand and slowing down and having a deep conversation with a friend or just sitting on the back porch just for an hour and a half and just, you know, just enjoying life. Well, of course. I mean, I, I, you know, that, there's no way that that's not going to be helpful. Sitting down, enjoying some time with friends. I mean, those are some of the things that we lack in a, a fast-paced American society. So whatever it takes to sit down and do it, I, I, I'm all for it because having those, that social support network is important. When we look at the biology of smoking cigars... The frequency of smoking a cigar and in the average cigar smoker is far less than smoking a cigarette. Yeah. You don't get up, have a cigarette, and use it as your way to wake up. And it's not as readily you mean, available. Do you mean you don't wake up with a cigar? Yeah, basically. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You don't wake up with a cigar like you do with a cigarette. Yeah. And it's not as easily or readily available or used. So. And it's a lot more expensive. <laughs> yeah. So the quantity that you end up smoking is, is probably going to be far less. And then I think the way that you smoke a cigar is very different. It's not going to be all inhaled like a, like a cigarette. And here's the other thing. 
it's not necessarily the tobacco, it's the preservatives in the tobacco that's the problem. So that also causes a lot of problems. When that's being burned and aerosolized, inhaling that causes a lot of inflammation and a lot of damage. If you're going to be smoking a cigar, it's generally going to be hand-rolled, it's going to be non-toxic, it's going to be something natural. And believe it or not, tobacco, the nicotine in tobacco does have positive effects on your neurochemistry. So there's, there's a lot of reasons why smoking a cigar occasionally in moderation is not going to be detrimental to your health. Does it, knowing the importance of inflammation, I love, and I doubt that you would, maybe you would know, is, is there anything out there about what, what this does inflammation-wise? That I don't know. I'd have to look at, look into some research and see if there was something specific. Because I, I, yeah. I personally, I would love, mm-hmm. like we have these continual glucose monitors now yeah. that you can wear and you can, I've heard Rhonda Patrick talk about them and Ben Greenfield and Dave Asprey. I've heard them talk about it, and I've actually thought about getting one just to kind of see what what a certain meal does mm-hmm. to my glucose so that way I can try and you know minimize those insulin spikes. I would love to have some sort of continual inflammation <laughs> monitor so that way you can try you can yeah. see what you know certain foods do and what you know different cigars do. Like is there a certain cigar that will spike it more? Okay, mm-hmm. I'll make sure I'm not touching that one. I'm going to the ones that don't. Or maybe it doesn't really bump up inflammation. It would have to be a, a short-acting inflammatory marker. Uh, the thing with glucose is that it, it, it changes on a moment-to-moment basis. Yeah. And there are inflammatory markers that do change rapidly, but I don't know if we have a reagent or a mechanism to test them as quickly. But it, w- I would, it would be curious. Um, I don't know if the uh, cigarette companies or cigar companies have invested in looking at something like that because the culture now is that smoking is bad for you. Yeah. And it is in you know, significant amounts. But if you're going to have an occasional cigar or an occasional cigarette, you're going to be okay. Yeah. So the next subject that people wanted me to talk to you about was combating fatigue. Mm-hmm. Somebody comes to you and say, I'm tired. Yeah. I'm just tired all the time. I assume you're going to start with diet, exercise, sleep. Yes. Yeah. Which, which we've talked about already. Mm-hmm. What else? Well, it depends on their age. We've got to look at uh, how old they are. The number one cause for, well, I, don't, I can't say for sure the number one cause, but the very most common, one of the most common causes I see for fatigue in men above 35 is low testosterone. And then along with that, uh, for women, not only is it testosterone, but it's thyroid. So men don't respond as, as much to thyroid. They don't feel the benefits of it as much, but it's still helpful for them. Yeah. We know this because there are studies that look at low thyroid, low levels of T3 and across the board and taken as independent variable when they've removed other factors, it's associated with higher mortality just like low testosterone is. Hmm. So, so, and we're looking at, you know, a, a level of total testosterone above 500. And then uh, T3, I don't remember the level, but that's, uh, again, these are the things that I'll look at when I see someone at, at the office. So I'll look at what their hormonal makeup is. And then that's the first part of the investigation. After that, then we got to see 
what other uh, sources of inflammation they may have. And then, you know, if they need to, if that's maximized, then it's their gut. We've got to see what their gut is doing. I think the importance of gut health is underestimated oftentimes, unless you're going to a functional medicine doctor, Mm -hmm. because that's the bread and butter for a lot of what we do. But the gut is the barrier, one of the most important barriers we have between the environment and our bodies. And it's such a permeable barrier that when it's not working well, it will affect our energy levels, our brain function. You know, the, there's brain fog that happens when the gut is inflamed. Really? So it's, you know, we call it the gut-brain axis. So, um, you know, when you have a leaky gut, you're going to have a leaky brain. I remember, I remember um, a documentary on Amazon, I believe, about the gut. And one of the things that they said in there are th- is there are so many neurons in our gut, it actually is equivalent to a Labrador retriever brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's also the, 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 the thinking that there is more DNA and genome in our gut biome than we have in our bodies. So who's really in charge here? You know, when we, when we between, look- between the various bacteria that are in there, viruses, phages... Yeah, there's there's also um, which which a lot of them which a lot of them are beneficial. Yeah, we we need them in order to live. Exactly. So if you think about it this way, you know when we a lot of our cravings are determined by what's in our gut. If we have a lot of of uh, fungus, candida, or 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 pathological gut biome, they crave sugar and they release chemicals, their neural hormones that will stimulate our craving centers to eat more sugar. So, you know, who's really in charge here? So, you know, is it our gut or is it us? And is there really a difference? So, you know, we want to make sure that our gut is healthy Mm -hmm. and and it's minimized in a lot of those pathological bacteria and microbes that are not supposed to be there. So that's a key part of it, looking at their gut health. I ask people if they're having a daily bowel movement and, you know, most of the time they look at me sideways because they think, what is a cardiologist doing asking me about my stool? But, you know, it's important. From a consumer perspective, what do you think about a company like Viome? Viome's a good entry point, um, but it's, uh, I don't know that, I'm not a fan of being really um, micromanaging our micro, our gut biome. Because the gut biome is so diverse, so complicated that it's really hard to be able to increase certain microbes and decrease certain ones. When we take probiotics, we're definitely introducing those microbes into our system, but they don't live very long. And it's, they're kind of like tourists in our gut. They'll be there for a little while, they'll hang out, they'll have their effect, and then they'll leave. So, you know, there is some residual from that they leave, but if the environment in the gut isn't optimal, then it won't help, which is why taking prebiotics is important. I love. So the combination of the two. And for those that don't know, a prebiotic is what the probiotics eat in order to survive. Mm -hmm. So what are some prebiotic foods or even supplements that people could take? Because I'd assume you'd probably say start with the diet. Yeah. Add these prebiotic foods. Mm -hmm. And then maybe supplement from there. Prebiotic foods are generally, um, they're just the fruits and vegetables that have a lot of color to them. They have a lot of phytonutrients. They're stuff that feeds the gut as well as is 
some of them is, is not even really digested. Like they're non-digestible fibers that really help our gut biome. As far as foods go, chia seeds are fantastic because they have both um, non-digestible fibers and then they also have a component of, that the microbes eat. Chocolate is a good one. You know, but we look at blueberries, we look at avocados, you know, broccoli is a big prebiotic. So, you know, it, it, there's tons of foods that are, that are readily available that we should just eat a lot more of and we don't get a lot of because it's not part of the bread heavy sort of standard American diet. How dangerous is this? What has the standard American diet done to people? And what sort of a diet do you recommend generally to people? I assume you probably would say, you know, for different people, mm -hmm. you know, a more, you know, ketogenic diet will be good for, mm -hmm. you know, to go in and out of ketosis. But for other people, they probably wouldn't be good. Yeah. Yeah. Ketosis is uh, it, it's it's good for a weight management tool. It's good for about four weeks, three to four weeks. Um, but to stay in ketosis is not healthy. It doesn't, uh, it, that will, the prolonged ketosis will um, cause gut biome derangements. It'll cause um, leaching of calcium and magnesium. Mm. It, it'll put a high acidic burden on our system. And then that has to be managed by those electrolytes. And then it also promotes a little more inflammation. So, I've recommended it as a short tool, but not sustained. But uh, the diet that I usually recommend, it's not really a specific one. It's an anti-inflammatory diet. And it stays away from the big five things, as well as eats foods that are anti-inflammatory. So the big five is going to be you know, soy, gluten, dairy, processed sugar, corn. Those are what we find as fillers in most of the standard American diet. And the problem with the standard American diet is that it's high in carbohydrates, high in processed sugars. It doesn't have enough vegetables and fiber in it. So we need to be able to, you know, have a daily bowel movement. We need to be able to have that fiber because not only does it help your gut, but it helps with detoxification. So when we, when we look at how our, our body is able to survive on a regular basis, we have detoxification mechanisms that go through our liver Bile is the way it gets excreted through our body, and bile goes through our stool. So if we don't have a regular bowel movement, that's going to sit in our gut and get reabsorbed. And that can be another source of fatigue. Mm -hmm. So back to the point of your cigar, if you're not having a healthy gut, then whatever, we might, whatever toxins we may be getting from the cigar are going to sit in our system. So it's important to have the system cycling and be healthy so that we can enjoy something like this. We talked about cardiovascular health. The next thing that was up on that list was brain energy. The, the simplest thing you can do for brain energy is fast. So you can't do that for prolonged periods of time. The next best thing is to do intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting being, you know, stopping calories at a certain time at night before you go to bed and then not eating until a certain time the next day. So... Personally, I usually maintain a 16-8 schedule, meaning 16 hours of fasting, including my sleep, and then eight-hour window. I do that four days, five days a week, and then take two days off. What are the benefits of intermittent fasting, and what would you recommend for a traditional fast, and what about fast-mimicking diets? So the benefits, it's a lot of what we've already discussed. It gives your, when we go back to the gut, it gives your gut a rest. 
every time we eat it increases the chances of, of inflammation occurring and food passing into our bloodstream and going into you know whatever organs and causing higher degrees of inflammation especially if it's inflammatory prone food so that's one out one benefit to it reduces the frequency of having those inflammatory exposures it improves our body's ability to start burning fat depending on what you've eaten the night before and what your diet is when you're not fasting, if you train your body to burn fat and make that switch from burning carbohydrates to burning fat more frequently, your body will do it more often. And burning fat is our most efficient fuel mechanism. Really? Yeah. Our, our so, so, the, so the whole, you know, no fat, low fat diets of the 80s and 90s, were they detrimental? Oh yeah, they were. Yeah, they didn't. They hurt us more than anything else because we saw cardiovascular events rise with the low-fat diet. Um, but wait, <laughs> if, if the fat is evil and mm-hmm. red meat is bad for you, and well, it's red meat that's uh, that's not organic or red meat that uh, has if it has fed. a huh? industrial yeah grain fed exactly. You know the fats are important; they're healthy. But we want to eat the right amounts and we want to eat uh, the right quality of them. So intermittent fasting will, you know, it'll help our bodies train our, train our cells to burn fat more, more readily. And that usually happens after about 12 to 14 hours. You know, if we've had a low fat meal the night before, then we'll have less in our system stored up. And then we'll switch to burning fat the next day more quickly. Uh, the other thing it does is it, uh, it helps brain health. You know, you'll find a lot of people that intermittent fast regularly, they'll say that they get a lot more brain clarity. And then when they eat, they eat a light meal during the daytime so that they can maintain some of that clarity and less of the fatigue. And then they have a, a, a larger meal at dinner time. So, and then the other thing that intermittent fasting does is it, it improves what's called autophagy, which is our body's mechanism for recycling proteins that aren't really being used. So our bodies will, our cells will accumulate misfolded proteins or dysfunctional proteins and they just kind of sit there and slow down our efficiency or slow down the work our works so our cellular work and so by intermittent fasting or prolonged fast we improve our body's ability to do that Hmm. prolonged fast meaning anything above 24 hours what's the sweet spot three-day fast one-week fast it depends on what your goal is. If you're, you know, if you want to maximize autophagy, then you want to go about three days, and that's just having that's not having calories. You could potentially do what you refer to as the fast mimicking diet, which keeps the the caloric intake below a certain threshold so as to not shift your metabolism to start burning fat. And it's also not just the calories; it's the quality of the food. It's a little higher fat, so it maintains ketosis but also gives you a little bit of satiety, satisfies you. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's, you know, the fast mimicking diet is a way to do it without having to actually fast, but you're still, I mean, your caloric intake is low. You're probably below 700 calories a day, maybe 500. Yeah. And you could do that for five days. I usually recommend 24 hours, uh, you know, maybe a three-day fast once a month because it will reduce your inflammation. It'll improve your body's ability to really clean itself out. It's not really a cleanse in the conventional sense of the word or the, you know, the colloquial way of people talking about cleanses. It's a cellular mechanism to help improve your efficiency. What are your thoughts about cleanses? I, I, the, you know, the cleanse fad. I'm not a big fan of a cleanse fad. I mean, I think you should just, instead of cleansing yourself, 
Just drink a lot of water and do a fast. You know, do that and you'll be okay. You'll do better for yourself and probably doing a cleanse. You know, I mean, you could, there are certain cleanses that are specific at trying to squeeze out more, you know, the liver cleanse or something like that. I mean, you, you can take some supplements to help improve your liver metabolism, but instead of having to do a cleanse, just have a regular practice of eating some activated charcoal. You know, that'll help bind the bile, which is where it's being, all that stuff is being secreted from. You can take a few herbs to help improve your liver's metabolism and then do that, you know, a few times. You can do that a few times a year and that's your cleanse. You don't need to worry about doing all the other stuff. Hmm. I just got some activated charcoal. How would you recommend people use that? Do, use it on an empty stomach and, you know, you can do it in between, during the work day or you can use it. I usually have, recommend like four capsules yeah. and take one day a week when you're, when you're not having a, heavy, a lot of heavy food or you're doing a fast. Take it in the middle of the day, take four capsules and you're probably set. Hmm. Very cool. Going back to the hormonal stuff. I totally identify with the thyroid medication feeling like it doesn't, because my thyroid is a little low, which I addressed probably, I'd say, about four years ago, I think, is when I started taking one and a half tablets. And I, I went, when I skip, I don't feel like I'm missing anything. Mm -hmm. But the testosterone was a game changer for me. And even more of a game changer when I saw you, because... I had been taking a cream that had been done at a local compounding pharmacy mm -hmm. and you were like, Hey, what, what, I think I can save you some money by going to an injectable. Mm -hmm. So I, I inject every four days and my God, the difference that I feel mm -hmm. it is like night and day. It is unbelievable. Have you seen that with, with guys that have moved from a cream to getting shots? It's, um, I haven't seen that that often. Um, well, actually, no, I take that back. Yes, I, I see that from when people come to me initially because most of the time creams are underdosed. Um, you, I've, I've, I've noticed that because, yeah. because there were times where I would get it from the compounding pharmacy that I saw here in Colorado Springs. And over the course of a month, I was like, is this thing doing anything? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the next month, it feels like they mixed it right. Mm -hmm. And okay, now I'm starting to feel a little bit better. Yeah. But but the injections, it's like consistent, mm -hmm. more energy, better focus. You know, I'm to be crass. I'm waking up with a with like like I was when I was a teenager in the sure. morning with with a strong wood. <laughs> that's well, that's a good sign. That's a good sign of being healthy because when your libido is intact and you're getting an erection, then that means your body has the extra energy to devote to that kind of stuff. If it's not doing well, it's going to sequester that energy for other things, for immune function, for health, for general stuff, for general maintenance. For my patients, once they come to me and I get them on whatever formulation I'm usually using, they're going to be adequately uh, dosed. Most people are afraid to dose testosterone topically at, at a high enough concentration. I mean, I end up using injectables. Well, I end up using for, I've used personally and for my patients, injectables, creams and nasal sprays. Nasal spray is a new option. And really? that's, yeah, and that's daily. Just do some squirts intranasally in the morning and you're done. And that matches physiology the best, uh, that and cream. Really? Yeah, because we have a, a daily peak in our testosterone from about seven to 10 in the morning. And then after that, it starts to decline. 
So, you know, my goal is to match our physiology the best and then optimize it. So a nasal spray is the most user-friendly way to do that. And then a cream that's high dosed, adequately enough dosed, that'll do that too. I suspect for you, you were getting underdosed and then we switched to the injectables and that got you the adequate dose and that's why you felt that difference. Yeah. But, you know, if you can use any one of those three options as long as they're, you're getting enough of it. Yeah. Last one mm-hmm. that people wanted to talk about was losing weight. Mm-hmm. Well, back to intermittent fasting, one of the, the benefits is that it's a great weight management tool. If you're going to be eating in a in a eight hour window or a six hour window, and you're going to eat be eating high fiber, you know high high vegetables, proteins, and eating healthy, then that's a great way to start a basic weight management routine. That and then you know of course you're going to have to do the right kind of exercise, which would be which is resistance exercise, resistance combined with cardio, and I say cardio meaning some aerobic activity. If you're already an athlete, then I recommend high-intensity interval training, no more than twice a week, balanced with the resistance exercises at least twice a week. So, um, you know, doing extended, slow cardio doesn't do you any good. I mean, well, it does you some good while you're doing the cardio, but there's no long-lasting residual benefits. Weight training provides better residual benefit on a metabolic level, and then high-intensity interval training does also. So, uh, you know, I like to assess what, you know, every patient is doing from an exercise standpoint. And if they're only doing uh, uh, aerobic activity, then I will really stress the importance of introducing resistance exercises. Are you familiar with the Carol bike? No. Okay. I heard it on Bulletproof Radio a while ago, and it really intrigued me. And it was one of the things I was looking at for Elizabeth because she hated exercise. And what they claim, and they have the science on their website to back it up, is that they use 10 minutes of HIIT training on this bike to get the equivalent of a standard 45-minute jog in mm-hmm. terms of VO2 max increase. Yeah. And I ended up buying it after Elizabeth died, and I freaking love it. Mm-hmm. So it's basically a two-minute warm-up mm-hmm. with 20 seconds of balls to the wall. You're sprinting like you're running from a tiger. Yeah. Three minutes of just main, just nice, slow, easy pace. Another 20 seconds of balls to the wall. You're going all out. Mm-hmm. And then three-minute cool down. And just over nine minutes. Yeah. And, and you're actually almost nine minutes, mm-hmm. less than nine minutes. And you get the equivalent of a 45-minute jog. And I freaking love it yeah it's there's studies to prove that that uh, high intensity interval training will provide the same caloric benefits and better long-term benefits than extended slow aerobic activity so you know it's nice and when you say slow aerobic activity what do you mean by that just a nice jog or a walk yeah yeah, a jog you know or or a leisurely bike ride so you know, doing some, well, and, and that's relative to the person. If I don't mean like leisurely bike ride. I, I mean, if you're doing a exercise activity and it may, be, it may be difficult, but if you're able to sustain it for a long period of time, then what you're doing is you're in a, a window where your slow twitch fibers are able to recover and they're the ones that are being trained, but your fast twitch fibers, which are uh, your power, your intensity, and also the longer term, uh, longer metabolic residual effects, those are not being stimulated. So you're in, unless you do something that pushes you to a point where you have to stop, 
then you're not doing yourself a, a, the best benefit you can with that exercise. Mm. In the exercise, you've got to push yourself to the point of failure. And it doesn't have to be anything extreme, but a sprint, you know, like when I go and I do a walk, when I, when I go for, out for a jog, it's not really a jog. It's a combination of walk, run, and sprint. And I'll do, it's only a mile, two miles at the most. Really? Yeah. And I'll do a, a light warm up for about half a mile. And then I'll do some sprints. And then if I can jog in between, I will. If I can't, I'll walk. But it's got to be a mixture of all of that so that hmm. all of my muscle fibers are going to be activated. Who are the people, podcasts, books, that kind of stuff that you're following? I, uh, well, I, I'm an avid follower of Dr. Seeds, and he's the guy that, is, he, he runs the institute that I'm a part of. He's a guru of cellular medicine and peptides, and so... How do you spell that name? S-E-E-D-S. Seeds. Yeah, he's an uh, orthopedic surgeon out of uh, Ohio, but yeah. uh, he's you know, central to a lot, of, a lot of peptides becoming mainstream because he was behind a lot of the initial education, and then he still continues to do it now. But uh, as far as podcasts go, I like the Living to 120. That's fantastic. And I'll listen to Joe Rogan. You know, it's three hours, but I don't, so I can't get through that because it just takes a lot of time. But he's entertaining. So, you know, yeah, the science is often hit or miss, but, you know, he's an entertaining guy. And sometimes, I, you know, I get enough of the science from Dr. Seeds and a lot of my research that sometimes you just want to be, you know, entertained by someone. Yeah. Nice. Very cool. All right. Dr. Abid Hussein, let's get to rapid fire questions. Hey everyone, before we get to Dr. Hussein's rapid fire questions, I wanted to mention if you resonate with Dr. Hussein and I are talking about and are interested in talking with him further, you can go to his website, interlinkedmd.com. That's interlinkedmd.com. He told me after this interview that he has that ability to meet with patients both in person in the Denver area, specifically the Denver Tech Center area, or if you're not along the Colorado Front Range, he meets with patients around the globe over Zoom. So learn more at interlinkedmd.com. And while you're there to cite, he also has blog articles, links to other podcasts, interviews, and much more. Interlinkedmd.com. Also, I wanted to mention that we have a health and biohacking section in the Holy Smokes group at our website. We set up this Holy Smokes group through the Mighty Networks platform, and I'm excited about what this can offer to us as a community. It's so much more versatile than what Facebook currently allows. We have the diversity of the classic internet forums for differing topics, like specifically health and biohacking, as well as the ability to help you all facilitate chapters in your local area, all with that social aspect like Facebook to share pics and posts but without the rest of all the toxicity that we're currently seeing on social media. I've been spending a lot less time on Facebook lately. So, if you're interested, check it out. Holysmokes.club. Now, back to Dr. Hussein. Rapid fire! Fire. Here. All right, so at the beginning of the episode, I normally say, what you smoking? Mm-hmm. You have. I gave you an Oliva Series V. Yeah. Delicious. What, what are your thoughts? Smooth. You know, I don't, I'm not usually one that can tolerate, you know, smoking a, a, a cigar all the way through, but this one is smooth enough and balanced enough that I can do that. I'm, I'm really enjoying this one. 
Nice. Very cool. What, what did you first try cigars? Because you told me in, back in, what was it, your residency? Yeah. You, Actually, it was a little bit after residency in my fellowship. Okay. And um, it, I started smoking the first couple of years in my fellowship. And when I was studying for some of my exams, I would smoke fairly frequently. And then it tapered off over the years. In Vegas, I was uh, smoking a little bit too. I was smoking Olivas, Arturo's, and uh, I enjoyed the, the company CAO. Yeah. So that was what I, historically what I've used. You ever do pipe? A little bit, yeah, occasionally. Yeah. Yeah, because I like that because it's uh, a less of an investment. It's just a few smokes, and then I can put it down if I want to. Yeah. Where's your go-to place when you get smokes? You said you'll, you'll go to a shop and get a little bundle, and yeah. then they, they dry out because <laughs> you don't have any place to put them. You yeah. didn't. Now I gave you one of my old humidors. That's right, and I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Uh, let's see. I was going to uh, Cigars on 6th for a little while. That's uh, on the way home, but I don't have a specific cigar, you know, cigar dealer, so to speak. Yeah. What's your favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? It's going to be uh, whiskey or bourbon. I mean, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be straight whiskey, bourbon usually. Any specific brands um, that you favor? Right now, I like Penelope, and uh, I've always enjoyed uh, High West and Eagle Rare, so those are good. Mm. Best memory with a cigar in your hand? Hmm. I just, I, I remember smoking uh, cigars in, uh, on my back porch when I was studying for my, uh, for some of my exams. And it was the best way for me to just relax after racking my brains all day and working. So it was, those were some of the most enjoyable moments with it. You touched on it a little bit earlier, but nicotine mm -hmm. has some benefits, Yeah, you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are some benefits to nicotine activating the right neurotransmitters for the brain to become activated and become more alert, more receptive to learning and, uh, and rapid firing. I, I remember, I, don't, I think it's Dave Asprey who's said this a number of times on his show, but some of the greatest literature in American history has been, has been nicotine fueled. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Marvel or DC? You Marvel. said you're a superhero guy. Yeah, definitely Marvel. Yeah. That was even before. Oh the, yeah. The movies before the movies for sure. Who's your favorite superhero? It was, uh, well, I, my favorite one was Wolverine. Okay. And, and then my other favorite one was the non superhero, the Punisher. Mm. You know, he was, uh, you know, they've, his emblem has been a little bit, has been uh, usurped by a couple of different groups now, which is cool. But, uh, you know, he was my, one of my original favorites. And then, yeah, Wolverine, there's something about that sense of justice that those guys had. I, I occasionally get these social media ads from this company who sells BPC-157, which is a peptide body protecting compound 157. And their subtitle on there is, or the little catchphrase, heal like Wolverine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was, the idea is that he could heal from anything. So, yeah. you know, and, and that's part of what longevity medicine and health optimization is about. It's uh, giving your, letting your system heal the way it's supposed to. And then when it's, get, when you're going through crisis, give it the compounds to help heal faster. And these things do do that. Star Wars or Star Trek? Mm, more Star Wars. Okay. Yeah, but I do like both. 
Favorite food? Favorite food, it, well, sushi and pizza. <laughs> I remember hearing, I don't remember, I've heard it from a couple places, that when you cook white rice to cool it and resistant starches, mm -hmm. those prebiotics, yeah. is that one of the things that makes sushi so just... I, like, I remember the first time I tried it back in 2002, I believe. Elizabeth and I flew to Hawaii to go visit her grandpa who lived a block and a half off Waikiki Beach in this condo. And um, on that trip, he was like, I'm buying the food, but you have to eat what I put in front of you. <laughs> and that was one of the things that we had tried. And both of us were like, we're kind of like, eh, this is okay. And then afterwards, we felt amazing. Mm -hmm. And I assume it's probably a combination of the fish oils. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, those fish oils are amazing brain food. Yeah. And have benefits beyond that. But then also maybe those resistant starches from the cooled white rice. I, I, I would think so. I do like to, you know, when I have sushi, I try and minimize as, much, as some of the rice. So I'll have like a combination of sashimi yeah, and sushi. But yeah, that's an interesting fact about rice is, and especially the sticky rice, when you cool it down, it, that's when those resistant starches are more readily available and used by your gut. Hmm. Dogs, cats, neither, or both? Uh, dog. This year, the, my first pet is a dog, and I got her this year. So what kind of dog? She's a mix of a pit bull and boxer. Oh. Yeah, so I, I never had pets growing up and uh, never understood the connection with the dog, and my fiancé has had pets her whole life and finally convinced me that it's something that I'd benefit from and she wanted for sure. Yeah. So we got her and she's been wonderful. She's a total sweetheart. Are you into sports? I like playing sports. I don't watch sports that okay. much. But uh, Do you have some teams that are your teams? The Giants, you know, and the, and then I'm always a home you? team. Huh? How old are you? I am 49. Okay. So two years older than me. Mm -hmm. So you remember Giants... With LT. Oh, yeah. Mark Bavaro. Mm -hmm. oh, that's, Carl Banks. That's where I Parcells. grew up. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That's, the, that's how that I was a special. Those were special teams. They were, yeah. That was, that could, you could argue that those were some of the best teams of all time. Along up there with the Bears. The McMahon and Ditka years. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it, that's, that's what I grew up watching. And they still have a special place in my heart. Uh, these days, the Giants are pretty, <laughs> pretty mediocre. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I still, I still root for them when I can. Since coming to Denver, I'm uh, definitely a Broncos fan, too. Nickname growing up or in college? I don't know if I had a nickname growing up. These days, you know, my buddy and my fiancé call me Abby D., ABD. Yeah, I don't know why, but they like it, so <laughs> I, I'll go with it. <laughs> Are you a reader? I do. I like to read, uh, but because of time, I end up doing a lot. I listen to a lot of books, so um, I'm a voracious listener. Um, and then when I can get the time, definitely. The last book that I read uh, is called Burn, and uh, it's a new book. It's a book about. Uh, the evolution and um, current science about a metabolism. Mm. Really good book. Really? Yeah. I'm going to have to add that to my 2022 list. Yeah, it's, well, I think it's worth it. Mm -hmm. Favorite one to three books? Um, let's see. Well, Dune is up there. Um, I've read the, the six series, the whole six book series by Frank Herbert. And uh, that's one of my favorite books. Really? Series. 
because each book is uh, an examination, almost a dissertation about some about human nature hmm. uh, and about a human process. You know, the, the first book is like a self-help book. You know, if you look at the mantras that he says and the the hero's journey that Paul Atreides goes through, mm-hmm. it's it's all written there. It's all you know aphorisms to help to use for life. What do you think about the two movies that have been made? I think the the old movies, the original one from the 80s. Yeah. Okay. The sci-fi series came out with Sci-Fi Channel Network came out with uh, the Dune series and then the Children of Dune and that was pretty good. I love the new one that came out. It's visually stunning. Oh yeah. It, it's really a really well done. Yeah, the whole different quality to science fiction and space travel and it's masterfully done. Yeah. Any other books? Um Let's see, what else did I read? As a companion to Burn is an older book called uh, Body by Science. And that talks about uh, high-intensity training, but in a resistance training format. And I've found that to be really enlightening. Really? Yeah, and it's shifted my resistance training. How so? I used to do five-by-five workouts, which were five reps, five sets. Mm -hmm. And I would do all the big compound movements with that. That was keeping me healthy, satisfied, and uh, I thought, and, and it worked for me, but I was reaching a plateau. This is a whole new system that talks about doing one set, slow reps, and less about reps, but more time under tension. Mm. So doing less weight, um, and then doing 60 to 90 seconds time under tension, and those last 10 seconds have to be to failure. To, so basically, you can't hold it up anymore. Wow. So um, it's, uh, it feels different on my muscles. I feel like I'm getting a, more, a deeper workout. Really? Yeah, and it's much more time efficient. So you only do one set of benches. Yeah. And then you do one set of pull-downs and one set of curls and one set of yeah. tricep extensions. They have a couple of different exercises to do on that day. But the workouts, I mean, my workouts are half the time now. Wow. But they're a lot more intense. They're, they, my heart rate goes up. I'm breathing a lot heavier. Huh. Um, it's a different workout. I'm about week three into it, and um, I'm feeling a difference. I'm enjoying it. Really? Yeah. I'll have to check. I've got a tonal. I don't know mm-hmm. if you're familiar with that at yeah, all. Yeah, I am. And uh, I'll have to see if there's a way that I can do that mm-hmm. within the system in creating my own workout. Or figure out some way kind of equivalent. I'll have yeah. to check out that book. Definitely. Mm-hmm. You like documentaries? I love documentaries. Favorite one to three? Well, right now I'm looking at I'm listening. Well, I'm looking at uh, the Ken Burns documentary on Muhammad Ali. Mm. I've seen the first one. That's great. There is a documentary on Netflix called Everything and Nothing. I think, and that one is about uh, physics and quantum science. Really cool. And then, um, you know, and then The Power of Art by Simon Shyamba. That's a seven-part series. Still love that Do you one. know where that is? Where, you, where one can, if, if one can find it? it if might, to... Yeah, it might be on PBS. Okay. Yeah, the PBS website should have it. I'll have to check that one out. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you like Ken Burns. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know if you've ever seen his documentary about Jack Johnson. No. Unforgivable Blackness. Mm-hmm. Jack Johnson was the first black heavyweight champion in the 20s, I believe. Mm-hmm. And fascinating i think it was a two-part and it's just a fascinating human and a character Mm -hmm. and his flaws and how he combated you know how what he dealt with yeah being the first black heavyweight champion in the 20s Mm -hmm. and you know how that shaped him and wow 
Yeah. That's uh, definitely what I'll look into. Yeah. Another book that has been profoundly effective for me, which I read last year, though, was Cast. And uh, it's C-A-S-T-E. And it's, it's a challenging book because it talks about uh, race relations and the history of the United States in a way that, you know, we often don't realize and maybe don't want to accept. So, you know, if you, it, most, you may not agree with it, but it's definitely worth a read for sure. Yeah. Going into that subject, you're not white. Mm-hmm. You're Pakistani. Yeah. You're you're actually you're the only one of your siblings that was born here in the United States. Yeah. What did you deal with growing up? There, there were races. What did your, and what did your dad deal with coming over as an immigrant? Yeah. That, well, what my dad and my, my siblings dealt with was very different than what I dealt with in the sense that they experienced, uh, I think they experienced discrimination and racism on a regular basis. But it wasn't, you know, as a, as a brown person, it's not quite in face or on the nose as, as it is with the black community. Mm. Um, but there is still a lot of that. It didn't really become something I was aware of until 9-11. And after 9-11, life changed for me. Really? Yeah. Even in, How New, so? in New Jersey. I mean, I, would, I felt the scrutiny in, and of being a brown person and a Muslim American. I mean, I'm not a devout Muslim, but... Being part of that community and identifying with that community, it really changed my experience as, as an American. And then it made me really, that was the first time I really felt the difference of being brown. And then, you know, it, it's been a kind of a lingering issue since then. Hmm. But uh, never really anything on, you know, uh, that's happened directly to me. A couple of occasions has been something. But... Nothing, uh, nothing traumatic, to so, so to speak. Hmm. But it's there, yeah. If you could live anywhere, where would that be? I'm enjoying living in Colorado right now. If I could choose any other place, I'd probably say, I'd probably go to Italy, Florence. Ooh. Yeah, you know the, yeah. the that really speaks to the, the to my the artist in me and the history of Florence, the Renaissance, just the Renaissance, just the yeah the history, the museum, the art artistry there, that would really appeal to me. You been there? Have not. That's on the list. Oh, dude! Oh, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. It is amazing. I also have a deep appreciation for Renaissance art. In fact, I almost went to art school coming out of college Mm -hmm. or coming out of high school, my art teacher was like telling my mom, you need to get him into art school. Mm -hmm. And I looked into it, but I mean, in, in 91, 92, when I graduated high school in 92, I really didn't see a a career in graphic design. Mm -hmm. I knew you could, but I didn't have anyone around me that was really showing me, no, you you can do this. And so instead, I ended up getting into radio, which is kind of an art for the ears, if you will. Mm -hmm. But I had this just love, deep, deep, deep appreciation for the Renaissance painters, especially Michelangelo. Mm -hmm. And so in 2000, the year 2000, um, Billy Graham did this conference called the Amsterdam 2000 Conference, brought an evangelist from around the world. And Focus, which I was working, Focus on the Family I was working for at the time, lent me 
to Billy Graham. They paid for my salary, and then BGEA paid for my hotel, airfare, nice. all of that stuff while I was out there. Once I finished with that conference, and I fell in love with Amsterdam. It's a beautiful city. Mm-hmm. People are amazing, especially those that remembered the war. I mean, the older mm-hmm. generation, they were like, they loved me as an American because mm-hmm. they remembered the Americans coming in and liberating. But I took a train down to Italy, spent one night in Milan, spent, I think, three nights in Florence and then four nights in Rome. And I wish I had flip-flopped it. I wish I had only spent two or three nights in Rome and mm-hmm. then the more, all that more time in, in Florence because I fell. I, one, I fell in, as I was driving through, I was like the hills of Tuscany. I mm-hmm. can just, I'd love to just spend a summer out there and spend some extended time and, and but everything all the art that i saw while i was mm-hmm. out there was just incredible i mean i sat in front of michelangelo's david oh. and just sat there and just looked at it and walked around and just mm-hmm. soaked and just like he did this and then in rome you know you had the pieta mm-hmm. and you had the sistine chapel and mm-hmm. i sat in the sistine chapel for geez i want to say it was three and a half hours wow I mean, I sat 90 minutes under, mm-hmm. right, I took the bench just right on the side so I'd look straight up and I'd see God touching Adam and just soaking that all in and just, oh, mm-hmm. it, was, it was magical. It was absolutely beautiful. It's profound. Yeah. yeah. I highly recommend going out there. Florence. And there's a couple places in Florence that the guidebook that I had gotten in 2000 had said, this is universally renowned as the best gelato mm-hmm. in, all of, in all of the world. Wow. And it was, oh, it was, mm-hmm. it was heavenly. What's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness? My greatest strength is my ability to focus and get job done regardless of what it is. Um, I think that that was something I found out about myself in med school and certainly in work. And then, you know, my greatest weakness is, you know, my sensitivity to things. I tend to take things personally. I don't know, it, it's, it's been a detriment to me when it comes to relationships or interactions with people, and I'm learning how to modify, to modulate that. Mm. Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful? Well, my brother. Mm. Yeah, because he, uh, I mean, he's probably the best cardiologist in, uh, one of the best cardiologists in New Jersey. And if you look at that, you know, he does the most complicated cases and takes and has saved so many lives. It's uncalculable, the effect he's had on this world. And, but, you know, that New Jersey is a very busy state. And then that kind of puts him in a global perspective. Like he's had such an impact that it's really uncalculable. Who's been the greatest influence in your life? I think Dr. Seeds, because mm. he has uh, he's come to me at a point in my life um, and given me opportunities to uh, express myself and show myself in a way and in a platform that I didn't have before, and has really been something that is evolving and really uh, really appreciated. Mm. What do you do for self care to rest? To recharge? I sleep and I paint. I still paint. I do a lot of still lives these days because it's a, it's a more meditative experience. Um, What's a still life? Still life is setting up uh, some inanimate object, something that doesn't move, hence mm-hmm. being still, 
and being able to sit and stare at that and really kind of sink into a meditative space, observing it and then painting it. How do you want to be remembered? I'd like to be remembered as somebody that was, that, that tried to express himself or expressed himself in uh, genuinely and also vulnerably and uh, fearlessly. Last two questions. Mm-hmm. If you could have a holy smoke mm-hmm. with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? It would be Muhammad Ali. Why? Why? Because he's incredibly entertaining, but he's also a, um, he was an activist. He was, uh, you know, a, he was a revolutionary in the way he dealt with race relations and sports. He's a sports icon, um, physically and mentally. I mean, he, he was the total package that totally revolutionized not just boxing, but sports and culture. And then uh, Jedu Krishnamurti, who is a mystic from the early 1900s. And if you look at just about every self-help book out there, it has inklings of what Krishnamurti taught at the turn of the century. Hmm. So, you know, I, that's the source, if you ask me. Hmm. And the book um, it, that's a good introduction to him, although it's a little thick, is called Total Freedom. And he is, I think, the father of all of the self-help teachings that we see now. And his teachings are just so rich and so full of so much really valuable information that most people have taken one of those those kernels of some of his thoughts and made a whole career out of it. So he's the source as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. And then uh, the last person would be uh, Diego Velasquez, who is uh, a Spanish painter, not quite, uh, he's of the same era of the Renaissance, but was in, was in Spain. Okay. And he's one of my favorite painters and is also one of the painters that's, there's a lot of mystery around him because there's not much history recorded about what he's done. But his paintings are just, they're magnificent and they've changed the course of, you know, Western art. Hmm. All right. Last question. Mm-hmm. If we're to meet one year from today and I have a bottle of that, that favorite bourbon or whiskey that mm-hmm. you like, I forget which ones you named. I usually try and remember them. Mm-hmm. What are we celebrating? Well, uh, we'll celebrate my second marriage. I'm going to be marrying... Denise Dambrakis, who is a lovely, lovely artist and partner for me. And she's an amazing artist. Mm. Um, so that's going to be in July. And then, Congratulations. Thank you. And then we'll be celebrating uh, the honeymoon. We're going to go to Florence. So Dude. Yeah, so there's that. And we're also going to go do a painting workshop, too. So we're gonna, I'm going to check off one of the things that I want to do. Nice. Dr. Abid Hussein, my man. Thank you for being on the Holy Smokes Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Mm -hmm.